Hello, everyone, and welcome to our January Angry Robot podcast. I'm thrilled to have two incredible female writers with us today who have been writing for Angry Robots for a long time now, and they're both this year ending a fantastic series for us. So joining us today, I have Madeline Ashby and I have Cameron Hurley. And before I kind of introduce them for you, I think it'd be better if they introduce themselves in their own words. So Maddie, Madeline Ashby, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm Madeline Ashby, and I am a science fiction writer and futurist living in Toronto. Um, I have the great privilege of writing the Machine Dynasty series for Angry Robot Books. I also am the author of a book called Company Town from Tor Books, and a bunch of science fiction prototypes and short stories and other fun stuff. Fantastic. And Cameron, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I am finishing up the World Breaker saga with Angry Robot Books. And so that is Mirror Empire, Empire Ascendant, and The Broken Heavens, which is out this month. Uh, I've also written uh, the Beldam Apocrypha series, the God's Word trilogy, uh, and a couple of standalone science fiction novels, including Star Legion, Light Brigade. I have some collections and articles and all of that stuff as well. I am also a marketing and advertising copywriter and working in uh, many different industries. It's so great speaking to uh, two authors that also have such cool day jobs. Because um, <laughs> like whatever hat you're wearing, you have something interesting to say. Um, but I think the first question I wanted to ask both of you is, obviously we've touched on this, this idea of you are just about to finish the final volume in these quite like epic trilogies. Uh, mm. that, so Cameron, when was the first one published for you? It was quite some time ago, the first book in the Worldbreaker saga. I want to say <laughs> 2013, 20, well, I don't think it was 2012. Yeah, it was, it was a while ago. It was 2013, 2014. Let's say that. So it's been a really long running, been in this world for quite a long time and you've written other things whilst you're writing this. How does it feel to be at the end of it? Uh, of relief. <laughs> There was, you know, there was a time there and me and my agent actually discussed it where I'm like, you know, do I pay back the advance and just say, screw it and have it, have it end on the second book. And it was, it was tough. I know people who have done that. You know, I, I have other author friends who just said, you know, I, I can't, I can't pull off the third book. And so for me, it was, it was a huge, huge win to get through this particular book. And once the ending was right, everything else I knew that we could do. I know there was still a ton of heavy editing, even when I turned it into you guys with the beginning. But I was like, okay, as long as the end is right, uh, we're going to we're gonna ship it. We're shipping this book. <laughs> um, so yeah, so there's a tremendous uh, sense of relief. And, you know, and honestly, I'm, I'm kind of proud of myself for not giving up on it. And proud, you know, it, that a lot of that's also just due to my agent kicking my ass. And so I was I was appreciative of that as well. And I think it's such a kind of amazing... Have you had your final copies arrive yet? Yes, they just arrived. Okay, yep. amazing. Because when they came into the office, it was so nice putting all three kind yes. of on the shelf together. It's really satisfying. Yeah. It's so satisfying. Because <laughs> they're so like kind of pleasingly chunky. Yes. Um, <laughs> so it's really nice to have them all three together on the shelf. Mm -hmm. But Maddie, you, you're, you're similar. Uh, the Machine Dynasty is uh, it's coming to an end. And how do you feel about leaving that world behind or finishing it up, tying up that trilogy? It is the same sense of relief because I also had a long gap in between the second novel and the third novel. So VN came out in, I want to say like 2012. And... This is actually a pop quiz about dates yeah. and when your books are published. Yeah, so... and, then, and then honestly, I forget the year that the, that ID came out. And then this one is coming out in 2020. So obviously there was this huge gap, which I was actually quite ill during that gap. And, and so it meant a lot to me to be able to finish it because I was... I had not been able to do it before. And the, the first time I wrote the book, it was incredibly broken. And the next time I wrote the book, it was still incredibly broken. It was, And it took a lot to be able to sort of pull something out of this because the first novel is told from very traditional protagonist perspective. And then the middle novel is told from a more complicated moral viewpoint. And then the third novel is told by the villain. And so she tells the story a lot differently. And it meant a lot to sort of finally be able to to get it out there and, and give people the final sort of capstone on it and say, like, no, this is this is how it's going to go. 
I know, and it's very exciting as well, because as an editor, I kind of jumped in uh, towards the end of mm. both of these books. But it's been such a privilege to kind of usher the end to both of these amazing trilogies through making sure the kind of covers are up and running. And I just know that there's so much excitement around ending the trilogy for both books, for both series, that it's, it's really great to see, because I think having the final one out gives the rest of the series a bit of a new lease of life, because there are True. those people out there who don't read series until they're finished. Which, you know, I've heard this, and I want the sales to say that. No, yeah. no. Let yeah. me tell you, I'm keeping a pulse on those sales, because people say that, and I'm like, okay. So that's like the first thing I put on Twitter. I'm like, you can binge read the series now. So, and now I'm looking at those sales numbers. Yeah, because I don't know. I don't, is that something just people say? to make us all feel bad or does that really happen and so that I don't really know yeah is that like a guilt trip for all right? yeah yeah because I don't know if you guys know this but you actually owe your readers books you know certain intervals uh, yeah. Very yeah. Yeah. you just owe them your entire there's, life there's not, not, a, not a single transaction yeah. lifelong <laughs> servitude yeah yeah made a commitment um, <laughs> But yeah, it is interesting. I think I should probably look into the data of that. I'd be I'd be interested in seeing it as well. For sure. Hmm. Maybe we need yeah. to do a data dive. Yeah, I'm not sure how you would even begin to measure that. Like the mm. I, I don't know. That's those are the numbers that Amazon deeply wishes they had. I, I think they probably do have them in a vault somewhere. <laughs> but it's not sharing. And that's a black box, yeah. <laughs> Guarded by multiple guards. You know. Yeah, or it's kind of like locking mechanisms. We'll have to pull it together a heist to get into them. Anyway, I wanted to ask you as well, because you've written both these kind of very intricate, amazing series, but you've also written kind of standalone novels, short stories. Both of you have moved across forms and styles of writing uh, quite extensively. Can you tell me a little bit about working in different forms? Do you kind of view it as a palate cleanser, like if you're going to write a piece of nonfiction to contrast the piece of fiction? Or is it, does it all feel like it's part of the same continuum? Cameron, do you want to answer? Sure. I do find to some extent that it is kind of a relief to switch modes. And I think that's mm-hmm. that's actually what happened with... And I just looked it up. It was 2014 when the first book <laughs> came out. Um, but I, I do find it, you know, especially I did the first book, the second book, and it was a two-book contract with Any Robot, and there was a freeze on getting new material, new contracts, while the publisher was, you know, being sold and going through some stuff. So that was why we said, hey... Since we can't get this third book deal, I really should probably focus first on writing something else. And Mm. it was kind of a relief to work on, you know, Stars or Legion and The Light Brigade, which were science fictional. um, And they were just so, so different. And it also gave me, you know, a chance to kind of reevaluate what I wanted to do with the series because, you know, the world was changing around me. Um, The U.S. had the election in there. And it was a good opportunity to revisit and reimagine what I was doing by doing other things. So yeah, so I do. I find them to be all challenging in their own ways. You know, Light Brigade was a time-traveling science fiction novel, and trying to make that time travel structure work was an incredible thing for my brain. <laughs> it's very different. Did you, have a, did you have a spreadsheet for it? How, how oh did my gosh, it? we had we had spreadsheets, we had it written down, we had it, uh, my agent actually, there was a graph, her, her husband is a, a mathematician, so he actually helped her do the graph of where everyone was in time. She double checked it, you know, toward the end to make sure all of the stuff went correctly. And anyway, it was a whole thing. Luckily, again, she knew a mathematician because otherwise I was stuck. I got 40,000 words into that one and the time time travel started happening. I said to my agent, I was like, Hannah, I don't know what the F I'm going to be doing. So uh, she was very helpful with that. And we did. We ran it through the graph about a bazillion times and it worked out. But I do. I find that those sorts of things, it it forces your brain to work in different ways so that when you do come back to something, again, like the broken heavens, you are looking at it in a different way. I think one of my issues with the series is I felt that I had set myself up with two choices for the end game and realizing that, in fact, I could do whatever the hell I wanted because it's fantasy. (laughs) was a revelation, uh, but I needed to walk away from it uh, in order to come back to it uh, with this fresher sense you know this Mm -hmm. this different sense of what it could be 
Okay. And um, Maddie, how about you? How does it feel to move between forms? Because I think you mentioned you're writing a nonfiction as well. Is that right? Yeah, no. So this year is really interesting in that uh, the final book in the Machine Dynasty series comes out. So Rev comes out. And then also I'm a contributor to a book called see, it has a very long title. It's called How to Future Leading and Sensemaking in the Age of Hyperchange. Uh, from, and that's out in also the same day, literally the same day, July 20th, uh, from Kogan Page Inspire. And that's me and my uh, colleague, Scott Smith. And we work together at a foresight firm. We sort of are part of a force, but sort of a boutique bespoke foresight agency called Changest. And I'm a freelancer on retainer for Changest, and and we travel all around the world helping people talk about the futures they want to have or the futures they don't want to have. And uh, we got approached, or I got approached to do a book, and I said I don't have a whole book in me, and also I owe this book to Angry Robot, so no. And and I said, but you know who does have a whole book, and that is my colleagues Scott Smith and Susan Cocksmith over at, at Changest, and I'm happy to work with them on on this project. And so we put together very quickly, enviably quickly, like I'm kind of in awe, uh, Scott is a machine, uh, and put down this sort of book about what we do at our jobs. And it was really interesting to sort of, I'd written nonfiction before I'd been a columnist with the Ottawa Citizen for a while, uh, back when they still employed freelancers. I had sort of been familiar with that. I've done a lot of academic writing and stuff like that, but this was like down to the wire, like get it done and playing with the tone in terms of who is your reader and knowing your audience. Like I find the the knowing your audience bit is crucial no matter what you're writing. Mm-hmm. And do you think a lot about the kind of reader as you write then, your imagined reader? Sometimes. I mean, certainly when I get asked by companies to do a science fiction prototype, then yes, I do. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I've been asked by, so my favorite anecdote about work, and this actually comes out in the book is, um, I was approached by a company to do a story about, uh, a technology that they had in development. And actually it was more like a technological platform. And they had like this big, beautiful presentation. It had like, it was like 150 pages. It was this huge PDF. It had like customer personas. It had near mid and far term future trends. It had these whole two by two matrices of possible different scenarios. It was like this gorgeous thing. And I said, I don't understand why you need me. And and moreover, who's going to be reading it? And, and the person who contacted me said, well, about six people are going to read it. Only six. The board is going to read it. <laughs> and I said, oh, great. Uh, so you you made this beautiful thing and you and, and why do you need me again for these six people? And they said and they said, well, we need something that we know they'll read on the plane. And it was literally about size. It was about size and portability and whether or not somebody will read something on their phone. Mm-hmm. And and so it was about not just the length and content and, and did you address the subject matter and like, have you fit the brief, but also what is the form factor of the thing that you're turning in? And will people actually pay attention to it? It's kind of amazing. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, I think that's very specific. Like usually you don't get a brief that specific. So no, it was nice yeah. they were honest. No, they were. They were. They were very straightforward. They were very well. Also, the deadline was like when I get things a- approached for things like this, like the deadline is usually very fast. And so they have to communicate really accurately about what it is that they want. Otherwise, there's just not any time left at the end. So you kind of when you write these things, there's a kind of very clear idea and a very clear directive about how you're writing. But have you ever kind of worked on a story thinking it was going to be one thing and then ended up turning it into something else, whether that's across forms, so like a short story that's Mm. turned into a novel, or indeed working within a genre, finding out Mm. that you're writing something which is playing with the rules of a very different genre? Yeah, I mean... Yeah, certainly. I mean, like, I didn't know, like, when I wrote, when I wrote Company Town, I knew it was going to be a murder mystery at sea. But I initially actually, when I had the concept for it, I thought it was going to be set in space. And then I realized I hate space. And I thought like, well, what's like space? The ocean's like space. We use seafaring metaphors all the time when we talk about space. So, so maybe you should just set it on the ocean. And so instead of a space station, it became an oil rig. And that actually gave the story a lot more personality, I think, mm-hmm. because then I, had, then I could set it in Newfoundland and then all the Newfoundlander dialect and slang and so on could work its way into the story. And that is something I've had Newfoundlanders tell me that, you know, they never see, they don't often see their their dialect in writing and uh, and in a way that isn't them being made fun of. And also I've had people tell me uh, from Newfoundland, they said like, wow, you're, you're one of the few people who writes about us actually having a future. Yeah. 
Um, and it, I think it's so important those when you're writing and representing um, a community in a dialect that it isn't something that's being made fun of. Because one of the things often when I read books, I find that when someone is representing a dialogue, it's often being used as some sort of joke at the expense of the speakers mm, in that dialogue. Yeah. It's kind of trying to indicate that someone is, you know, not as bright as the other characters or they're a comic character. It's a very different signaling. And I think when you work within the respect of that dialogue, it just completely changes the way you well, interact with the story. Yeah, certainly in Canada, the Newfoundland accent and dialect is often is often the target of humor. And mm-hmm. it was interesting to sort of think about how it would sound like what it would literally sound like and probably it was a really it was a really interesting research experience because i didn't fly over there to you know do any research i wish i could do that but uh but i couldn't do that and instead i just listened to a lot of youtube videos and -hmm. people like oh wow this is actually more accurate than we thought it would be amazing and um cameron how about you have you ever worked on something thinking it was going to be one thing and then had a surprise difference at the end you know, I I write, I'm very much a, you know, gardener type of writer. So a lot of times I will discover things at the same time as my characters. <laughs> I'm yes. like, oh, so that's what happened. Okay, good to know. Um, so to me, every book has a lot of elements of, oh, wow, okay, I guess that's what's happening. And then I have to go back and I have to change it, which is not a very efficient way to write. My agent is really trying very hard to help me do that differently. <laughs> um, but I do find, you know, that I discover things, a lot of things as I go, and then I have to yeah. come back and, and revise it and all of that. But that to me is the fun of being a writer. Um, mm. and you know, I will do a very general sort of outline. So I know, sort of where things are going but you know the i i think i'm thinking of stars of legion that i started it out doing a third person pov uh third person past tense pov and like twenty thousand words into it i realized it needed to be first person present tense mm-hmm. and so i had to go back and redo the entire thing um but sometimes you just, it's just something i learned you learn organically just sort of going through the going through the motions um i love that madeline's like oh i just don't like space <laughs> Yeah, I just don't. I just don't. Because yeah, I'm working on a science fiction thriller right now, Mm. and I'm just like, how much do we actually have to have on the space station? I actually want to be on Mars. I want to be on Luna. I want to be on Phoebe. Like in actual space station. Um, so no, it's just interesting as science fiction writers, I, what uh, what we're like, yeah, this is well, cool. And then we're like, no, I just, uh, too much space. Too much I've, space. I've, written two, I've written exactly two short stories set in space, like exactly two. And they're both with the same characters. And they the second one is coming out soon. But the first one is called uh, Death on Mars. And it was, um, and I wrote it, I started it in the year that David Bowie died. And um, I got approached by people at the Center for Science and the Imagination at ASU. And they, they said, well, we're working working with NASA on this anthology and and it's about the future of Mars exploration. Do you want to participate? And you'd be able to talk to people from NASA. And I said, uh, yeah, sure. Thanks. Mm. Because it wasn't about space. I was just like, I get to, I get to ask people at NASA questions. Yay. <laughs> and, and so I actually ended up writing about what it would be like. I wrote about someone who gets cancer uh, on their Mars mission. Um, they're actually stationed on Phobos, but they get cancer and then don't tell anybody. And they don't tell their crew members until the replacement is already on their way. And so it was way less about space or way less about Mars than it was about like this weird interpersonal dynamic and like, when is it okay to be to lie when it when is it all right to lie and like what are the rules around privacy in space especially when you're living in like essentially a giant beer can with all of these other people and and so it was it was more interesting to me for that but in the end i actually wrote like in terms of like something surprising you you know the story's always moving underneath your hand right like it's always moving underneath you and this turned into a story that had like this sort of more classic you know, hard science problem than I ever expected it to have. Like the the only way to resolve it was was to have this really like a thought experiment thought problem in in a more classic science fictional way. And I hate that stuff. Like I can never stand to read it. So I was really surprised that that was the resolution. So yeah, that surprised me. Mm-hmm. I, I just your mention of that kind of basis. Um, what you thought about that story and this kind of idea of keeping uh, illness a secret. Have hmm. you guys seen the stuff around? Um, that documentary about not telling your grandmother that she has cancer. Oh yeah, around uh, the farewell. Uh, I really, really yeah, want to see it. Has anyone seen yeah. it? No, uh, I have I not have seen not. it. 
But I do know a family who did that, actually. Yeah, because Grandma said said early on, if I'm really sick, I don't want to know. And I and and they respected her wishes so that when she got cancer, it was. Yeah. And they were just like, well, she she, again, she's like, I want to go. I don't want treatment. I don't want this. I don't want that. And they respected it. Yep. No, it's it's a thing. And actually, oh, if, yeah. even in the States, I know that even a few decades ago, it was seen as like, you just weren't to tell people, but especially women, mm-hmm. especially yeah. women were yeah. not meant to know that they might be dying or they might be more ill or, or that they might, that there might be other treatment options or, or what have you, which like really sort of caused a lot of families to, to suffer in silence and a lot of women mm-hmm. to not know what was actually happening to their own bodies. But, you know, twas ever thus. Yeah. Yeah, it's just kind of an amazing, and I think it is very interesting, that kind of idea of, uh, you know, keeping those secrets, those lies. And as ever with science fiction fantasy, yes, you have these kind of like epic imagined world settings. But I think most of the time in the stories that I like to read, it's it's the characters that drive it and those questions. And I think that's true of, of both of your trilogies. There are these kind of amazing characters carrying us through these um, plot lines. You know, it's not a massive essay into what this world looks like and feels like to be in, though that's a really rich fabric of the background. It's about the story of the people within it so yeah guys read if you haven't read the series yet you need to go out and read them to prepare <laughs> for the new books to be out feed our animals um, buy our books <laughs> <laughs> and yeah on that i think we've already talked about it a little bit but this idea of keeping these stories together and planning and how you approach writing something that is um this large series where you're going away and coming back to it in between so karen you touched on um spreadsheets for one of yours one of your books but for the Wellbreaker saga how did you keep track of the story were you just holding it in your head the entire time no, um, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, no, I uh, I actually have a wiki for both of my trilogies, for mm-hmm. uh, the Worldbreaker books and for my Beldam Apocrypha books. Uh, and actually, every time I have a new book or story come out, I send it to my assistant and I say, hey, put all these characters and terms and all that stuff into the wiki. It's really great. <laughs> it's a great thing to do. So I ended up doing that. Um, so I had something to refer back to. But I also, you know, as I was really deep into it, because I, again, I had switched what I wanted to do with the ending. Um, I just reread the books. I reread the first two books. I put a, with a lot of sticky notes and a lot of underlining. And I use them re- like reference books. They're sitting mm-hmm. right here next to me still, actually. Um, one of which is falling apart. <laughs> I was referring to it so much. Uh, that, well, I have a photo of your reference books at some point. Yes, I like to see them. reference books. Books. Yeah. And in fact, each of my books, like I have the the wall of like, here's all the stuff that's come out in all the different formats. But then I also have just a shelf that is for reference that you can mark mm-hmm. them up, you can do whatever to them, just so I know what I've written. And, and I think that's the thing too. Like I've written 11 books in nine years or so. Um, and it's, it's hard to keep track. It's hard. I don't remember what I've written most of the time. Um, so I do, I like to have for the trilogies. I like to have the wikis. I've actually enjoyed doing these one-off books. Again, the stars of Legion light brigade, this thriller, uh, losing gravity that I'm working on because I don't have to have a wiki and I don't have to keep track mm-hmm. of all of that. It's a one-off standalone. Um, in fact, I get people asking all the time, Oh, are you going to have a, a sequel, especially to, to Stars or Legion, people love that book. And I said, no, <laughs> it's one off. It's one off. I'm not starting a wiki. Um, it, that was the story I wanted to tell. Um, so, yeah, so those are the, the tools that I use. Um, I also, of course, you know, went through and I, I would write, or, you know, an overall outline, a chapter by chapter outline. But for the most part, for like going back and making sure that everything I was doing was sound and I understood the characters and all the relationships, I'd refer to the wiki and to the books themselves. Mm-hmm. And Madeline, how about you? How, how have you held it together? Do you have notes, spreadsheets, an amazing memory? I question the premise that I held it together. <laughs> yes! Yes! I question that premise. That seems like a assumption to make. Um, let's see. So I did end up rereading both VN and ID. I reread them over over again, and I put sort of sticky notes and highlighter passages, and and I sort of like made a list of like what are the things that we have not done that I always wanted to do. I sort of made a wish list of like, well, these are the things that this story makes possible, and and that we haven't done yet. So let's try that. 
like let's let's sort of you know it's the last time like we should sort of just do all the things that we want to do uh so long as the story actually permits it and that's how i wound up writing a prologue that was sort of a a robot theme park in the vein of westworld but about vampires where robots play vampires and so on because i was like well you know i can so i should in terms of the actual technical keeping things together in terms of that i use scrivener uh for a lot of those things like scrivener has like whole research panes and sort of allows me to to keep even the stuff that i've deleted in in one key place i can search by keyword i can label things in terms of their level of doneness and Mm -hmm. and other things like that so i find scrivener really useful for that but also i would say that like fundamentally when i started these books my brain was just different and i was used to keeping track of long-term projects academically like i had written two master's theses so i knew my own tips and tricks for for doing things like that. I knew how to execute that type of of thing and execute that type of research and keep it all together. And so I basically just sort of grafted those habits onto, onto novel writing. But were I to do it over again, I would probably do it far differently. I would do something closer to what Cameron is describing. I used to not really outlined terribly well and now i find uh that i'm much better about it and one of the things like one of the things that changed is that sort of my brain changed and the other is that i worked on a project uh with serial box the podcasting fiction platform for the continuation of the tv show orphan black and that required a writer's room and when you have a writer's mm-hmm. room when you are responsible to all these other writers, you really have to have the outline in place and you really have to have the continuity in place and you have to have the entire world agreed upon together. And that taught me more about outlining than anything I had ever experienced before. Yeah, I imagine working with people creates a very different sort of set of expectations and how you're all in it together, because you're not just responsible to yourself and holding it together. You need to make all of these things that you're kind of taking as a given as rules out there to share. Yeah, it was it was definitely a case of like, would you ever do that to someone else? Like the sort Mm -hmm. of the question of like, would you let someone do that to your best friend? Well, no. And and so for the writing process, it was sort of you had to be on your best behavior. And and you had to do things for the benefit of of everybody. And it really made a huge difference because it, it really forced me to sort of interrogate my process a lot. And it really, when you're sitting in a, in a room and you have to break down things, sticky note by sticky note in a room over the course of three days, working together in, in shifts, you really have to think carefully about what you're signing other people on for. Mm-hmm. And that sort of forced me to, to learn how to do it in, in a way I'd never really learned before. Yeah, and I think it does change, as, as I think both of you have been saying, you've been talking about how you change the way you write and become a different person as you grow older, your brain changes, you learn different things. And Cameron, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, you've written a little bit about how over the course of your career of writing, you said it's 11 books in nine years, which is amazing. Um, <laughs> the process has got harder rather than easier. And can you talk a little bit more about that? Is it kind of expectations? What is it that's making it harder? Do you just, do you have higher goals for yourself? Sure. Um, a lot of it for me, there's there's two things. Um, one of them is that, yeah, as you level up as a writer, as a creator, you are able to see what's wrong. <laughs> Yeah, a lot more yeah. easily. Yeah. Um, and in fact, Elizabeth Barrett talked about this uh, quite a bit where it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't get easier, but it gets better. Like the end product ends up being better. Um, because like you marriage. do, what was that? It's like marriage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, you have to spend the time. I remember when I first got started, my first trilogy, I just threw everything out there. I didn't care. It was just like, ah, oh, I'm going to do what I want. And they're a hot mess as far as structure goes, but they're really fun and, and rompy and um, fun mercenary chopping off heads books. But as I got more sophisticated and I started to understand, especially one of the reasons I signed with my current agent, who's actually my second agent, is because she is very good at story structure and plot. And I said, that is something I need. I know I need to work on. And I've spent, you know, the last five, seven years really dedicated to figuring out structure and plot, um, kind of culminating in the light brigade, which was the time travel story. And then also, you know, being able to pull off finally the, the end book, 
uh, in the world wrecker saga with Broken Heavens. And I think that, so a lot of it's that, it's just that you can see what's broken a lot more easily. I don't write nearly as fast as I used to because I end up stopping and going, okay, this is wrong, Mm. which is good because then I don't spend as much time on the back end fixing it. And then the second thing is that, yeah, there is, there is an expectation. I think I talk quite a bit about, you know, all it takes to be a writer who is relevant and has a a great career is that you need to write a genius book once a year over (laughs) and over and over until you die. (laughs) (laughs) It's genius every time. Uh, And there is, there is an expectation, especially, you know, you start getting critical acclaim and, and awards nominations or wins and stuff like that. And, there does start to be an expectation that every book needs to be better or different or more interesting than the last. I don't think that that's necessarily true for all writers. I think you, you know, look at John Scalzi and he's very much like, I just write consistently, you know, fun, entertaining books. And he's not out there to like, you know, blow up the genre or anything. Um, But for me, I like, I want to write stuff that, you know, they talk about with Light Brigade, that is like a canon book. Like it's, a a Mm. wow, this is the latest military science fiction book. I like to write stuff that really transforms or pushes forward the form in some way, uh, which is not for everyone. And that would probably sell better if I just wrote John Scalzi books. <laughs> but I really like to put stuff out there that makes people go, oh. And in order to do that, I do have to spend a lot of time with research and interrogating mm-hmm. my process and my my expectations and my assumptions and all of that. And it does. It gets harder as you go on because you've gone through, right? Okay, I've redone military science fiction what's next okay redone space opera what's next um now i've redone epic fantasy what's next uh and you do you're always looking for okay what is what is the next thing that will kind of wow the audiences Uh, and it does it gets it gets tougher the more that you do (laughs) you to run out of things yeah right where you're just like oh man i have to be a genius again (laughs) (laughs) screw that why can't I be the writer who has like two books and there's lives on them forever? Um, but I, you know, I, and I, I like that struggle. I do like that challenge. I mean, to be honest, uh, if it was easy or if I felt like I was writing the same book over and over, I'd get bored. Cause I do, I write uh, a lot of short stories set in the universe of my first trilogy and they're fun and I love doing them, but I don't think that I would write them forever. Right. I, if I had to write them forever to, to eat, I think I'd get really bored. So, mm-hmm. and how just... about um, for you, Madeline? Um, how has the process been? Do you find that it's got harder as you've learned more? Huh? Yeah. I mean, you do. I think Cameron's right. You do sort of see the seams more, and you see where you're going wrong. You see where you're mm-hmm. going wrong, and that is both punishing, but also validating. You feel as though all of the work is going somewhere because you've learned more. And I would say that I think that there's. I'm trying to think of of how how to describe it. It's it's still fun. Like it's still I like when I discover that I've been wrong. I like when I discover those moments where it's like, oh wait, no, it could go here too. And and so why so why not take it in that fun direction? I guess it does get it's certainly not easier, but describing it as harder is sort of it's not as simple as that. It's more complicated. What it is is that it's more complicated. It's more complex. You understand the nature of the problem in a different way than you used to. And the problem itself sort of becomes more wicked. And you see more pieces and more moving parts than you used to. And, you know, it's sort of, I guess it's like all adulthood where you realize that, like, things are not as, as simple as you thought that they were. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's, it's a good that's, just how thing, it, that's just how things are. Like, it, it, that could be any problem. Because I feel that way about, you know, all the other things that I do, too. And, and I think a lot of people, no matter what their job is, they feel that way about their job. They went in thinking it was going to be one thing, and then they realize that it's something else. And they realize that there's more going on inside of it than, than they ever realized. And yeah, I think a lot of people feel that way. Can I ask you a little bit about your, your day job as well, Madeline? Can you tell for the uninitiated, what is your kind of job description? <laughs> Let's see. Uh, it depends you are on hiring a version of it. Depends. You. It depends on a on the gig, really. But um, so uh, I work for a I work with a, a small sort of boutique agency called Changes out in the Netherlands. Even though I live in Toronto, but I also work as a sole proprietor um, as a consultant. So as a foresight consultant, one of the things that I do is I write uh, stories and science fiction prototypes for people who have technologies in development, and they say we're working on this thing and we've been working on it for years. How will humans actually use it? 
And they asked me to write a story about that. Alternatively, like, it's not just that. Like, I facilitate workshops. I write trends reports. I sort of do research for people. Um, I help them have a conversation about the future. And that can be the future that they want to have or the future that they would desperately like to avoid. And it's sort of a, a critical, like, I get to have a lot of interesting conversations, put it that way. Mm-hmm. Much like my job, then. Yes. Job well, is, no. Uh... It is. It's surprisingly editorial. It's surprising. <laughs> you you would be you would be surprised. I often analogize it to corporate therapy. Like you yeah. walk into a room and you and you say you are often there to deliver some hard truths to people about the outside world or outside of their industry and sort of say, or even just sort of what else is going on in the world. You know, the price of this is going to impact your business in this way. Let's have a conversation about that. Or what is it that you're afraid of? Or what is it that you're really excited about? Where do you want to be in five years? Where do you want your children to be? You know, those things sort of get into the nitty gritty of how people feel about the future. I think that people think that mistakenly think that optimism or pessimism is a choice. It can be, but only after you've already dealt with your instinctive feelings around it. And optimism and pessimism are often learned behaviors. And so when you're working with that, you have to sort of untangle all of those feelings and, and get into why people are responding to the future or to the, to the present time as they, as they are and dig into why they might be anxious about certain things regarding whether it's technological development or, or social upheaval or, mm -hmm. or climate change or, or what have you. Like, and certainly now, like we, we end up dealing with, with a lot of really huge questions. Yeah. And I think it sounds really interesting in the way it kind of interacts with your fiction writing as oh, well. Oh, for sure. There's yeah. almost like a kind of lack of a seam there. And <laughs> yeah. one of the things I wanted to ask Cameron is for you and, and your kind of day job and what you do professionally, how does that work? How does it change the way you see fiction? How does it indeed even change the way you interact with your publisher's, you know, publicity department uh, and marketing if you are kind of an expert in it yourself? <laughs> It's one of those things where I understand that I have, especially now after having done this for quite a while and working mm -hmm. with a lot of different brands and, and all of that, I know that I have an understanding of the basic process, right? Of marketing and how mm -hmm. to change people's minds and how it's all emotional and all of those things. And I do bring a lot of that knowledge, not only, uh, again, as far as publicity calendars and actions that I do to promote work, but also in my science fiction, as far as looking at, you know, how to influence people. I mm. think I wrote um, an article, which, which won a Hugo Award, which was We Have Always Fought, uh, about uh, how women have always been participants in uh, armed combat. And one of the ways that I got into that was understanding that people were going to bounce off it if I didn't tell a story, um, mm -hmm. if I didn't make it humorous, if I, if I tried to immediately, you know, bash them over the head with feminist lingo. I knew from the work that I had done, and especially I have very, very much an interest in psychology and sociology as well, that we retain information much better when it becomes in the form of a story and when it moves us emotionally, right? And I think I use those techniques certainly in that particular piece and in a lot of other you know, writing that I do, whether that's articles or fiction as well, you can get your points across a lot better when you tap into that emotional vein. It's something I struggle with sometimes with brands is trying to tell them, hey, no one gives a crap how many widgets that you have and all mm. your sexy bullet points. No one cares. Mm -hmm. What can I do with this? How yeah. is it going to transform my life? Yeah. How is it going to transform my relationships? And all they want to do, of course, is talk about the bullet points that they've been spending all this time on. And I'm like, that's great. But I can't talk about that until we make emotional decisions. We use logic to back up those decisions. So once they've made their emotional decision, then we tell them the logic. So that's something that that I do a lot, <laughs> do a lot oh, yeah. in day job stuff. And uh, and also when just in talking about my my own work online, I see people all the time being like, oh, buy my book. And I'm like, what is your book? Who cares? <laughs> yeah. What is it about? Well, it's on sale for $1.99. So, so what? <laughs> what is it? Isn't it adventure? Does it, again, Gideon the Ninth was great because Carl Laird is, is wonderful at promoting. And he's like, mm -hmm. it's lesbian necromancers in space. space. And I'm like, holy shit, buy now. Um, <laughs> it's not, I have a widget and you need it. It's no, I've got lesbian necromancers in space. You need it. And lesbians in space. I did that with uh, Stars are Legion. It's like, oh shit, well, mm -hmm. I need that. And I think that's something we forget 
as artists and creators and just like the big brands do. So like, I have a widget. So what? Everyone has a widget. What makes mm-hmm. your widget? Why do I care? Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, so I do. I, I uh, bring a lot of that, those ideas. So for sure. And I think it's about the way you kind of you pitch it and talk about your book and that that kind of emotional resonance. You want to get people instantly excited about it. Like, you know, lesbian necromancers in space tells you so much in the space of a sentence mm-hmm. about whether or not you're going to enjoy that book. Um, and it's such a clear, fast way to find the readers who are going to immediately want to buy it and pick yeah. it up. Yeah. And to that end, mm-hmm. you two, would you like to... Um, Pitch me the series each. Your books, <laughs> pitch it to the listeners. Uh, sure, sure. No pressure. They can do that. That's so mean of me. I know. I'm horrible. <laughs> I, I I actually had to develop this. I had to de- I had to describe this. Mm-hmm. I will tell you. Okay, like I'm going to tell you a story. You want you want some lore? Yes. Uh, you want some lore? So when I initially pitched VN, the first book in the Machine Dynasty series, to Angry Robot, I did it at a party at uh, at Montreal Worldcon. So I was shouting, and I was shouting for about a half an hour. And um, and at the end, Mark Askren said, "I really like this, but you really have to work on your pitch." <laughs> and, and and he was right. He was totally he was totally correct. He was totally correct because I was like green as grass and and didn't know how to talk about my book. And the thing that taught me how to talk about my book was the promotion of the book. And I often Mm -hmm. feel as though I don't truly know what the book is really about until I've been interviewed about it approximately 20 times. Mm -hmm. And so I got really good at describing like what the book was about you know, ex post facto, the book, the book having already been published. And and so I landed on this, which was uh, VN is the story about the is the story of a five year old little robot girl who eats her grandmother alive. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, and then and then she hooks up with uh, people and they go on adventures. The end. <laughs> All right, Cameron, hit off with yours. <laughs> oh, shit. It's been so long since I pitched this series. No, I uh, I often describe it. It's uh, the world, you know, the Worldbreaker Saga is a fantasy epic about a bunch of parallel universes that are invading and uh, have come to destroy uh, the world as we know it. Only one world can survive the incursion. Uh, the yeah, I love it just because it's this whole idea of where, where the evil, the evil bad guy is ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that particular theme, and there's some really fun stuff that I can do with it. Uh, you know, an epic fantasy where literally these people are are fighting themselves um, mm-hmm. and defending themselves. So, yeah, which I think you've been talking about a lot actually in relation to The Witcher. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Has everyone watched The Witcher? Yes, yes, yes. Several right. times. Several times. Yes. yes. Spoilers to anyone who has not watched the Witcher series. What but is let's wrong talk with about you? the Witcher because I love it. I love no, it's the great. Witcher. It's great. Yeah. It's a delight. Just, it's a ball. It's just and it's that kind of thing as well about um who are the monsters here? Yeah. That kind of like the portrayal of um, yeah. the elves, especially who have mm. kind of been pushed out, and this kind of like series of monstrous things which are going on constantly. When you pitch it, it sounds like a simple kind of fantasy epic of this man who has to set out to save this ward, essentially. Yeah, it's a it's a hired gun story. It's about you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's Conan, it's, it's Elric, Conan, it's, it's Elric, yeah. it's 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 yeah. it turns into lone wolf and cub at a certain point, yes. like yeah. you know. It turns into a monster of the week almost mm-hmm. like basically a western kind of like have gun will travel or rifleman or something like that mm-hmm. where it's like there's this enemy we have to defeat them this is also why the mandalorian works because it's basically yes. a western yeah. that you know if there's a there's i'm not a bounty, allowed to see it it's there's, not in the uk there's yet a bounty, i'm very angry about there's it a bounty of the week <laughs> Well, you've probably already seen the gift, so like really Yeah. So that's yeah, I, mean, lot, right? I mean what else yeah. do you need to know? Yeah, no, I mean that's all you need to know. Is, is baby Yoda. That's all you really need to know. Um, but it is really nice, I think, to uh, be excited by a new fantasy series mm-hmm. uh, that is kind of going around because I think I mean I personally felt extremely tired by the end of Game of Thrones <sighs> um, yeah. I just felt I like I was kind of like no this has really been the year of like or like 2019 into 2020 I think was like the year of a lot of people really being disappointed with their with the ends of their franchises which doesn't bode well for me but yeah. um the <laughs> 
but 2020 is a fresh start. Yeah, fresh start. Tell you now my agent thinks my ending is excellent. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it is, I think, so nice to have something kind of like new and fresh. And I wasn't super familiar with uh, I've read now the first book in the Witch series, mm. which I then had a massive bust up fight with one of my friends uh, really? over the holiday because she hates the series. Oh, interesting. And, um, and loves the books. And we oh, quite a large interesting. Oh, yeah. um, but she hadn't read them. Uh, she read them in uh, original language because she's Polish. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. Um, yeah. So I kind of didn't have that much of a leg to stand on because who mm. knows if the translation just isn't as good as, mm-hmm. as the original because she kept saying he would never say this and then I was reading the translation being like I did hear this I, I don't know I did hear this this really interesting thing about The Witcher which is like sort of to the point of like what it's like to adapt something yeah. um it, where you know apparently the the showrunner on The Witcher uh said you know in the in the novels Geralt talks a lot he's a talker Mm -hmm. he's very chatty he has a lot of dialogue whereas henry cavill is not that way even when he's playing superman he doesn't talk a lot he's just he's 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 there to do a few things and and talking is lower on the list than some of the others i think that he i think that like but when you have that when you have somebody who can sort of like communicate all of the emotion that they need to communicate with the words hmm and fuck like yeah that's really all you need and yeah it grants other people in the scene room to do what they need to do because there isn't a voiceover. And if there were a voiceover, you would absolutely hate it. And it's a thing like, certainly it's a thing that we, I know that I had to be really mindful of in writing for Orphan Black. Like suddenly it was like, oh wait, Tatiana Maslany is going to be reading my dialogue. Mm-hmm. So you better level it up. It, it had better be worthy of this person who won an Emmy for this job. <laughs> Um, and you had better make it sound like the characters that she played, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to map it over. But in the in between, there's all this prose that she has to read too. So it was the finding the balance of that is actually really, really difficult. And I think it's one of the things about translating something that was prose only over to this visual medium. I was working on a mm-hmm. comics project once where I had written out an entire, like this huge comic script and my artist like gave it back to me and he said, you understand that this is a visual medium, right? <laughs> totally different (laughs) yeah and it's true i you know Mm -hmm. again it was a newbie mistake where it's like oh yeah i can just communicate this visually oops (laughs) (laughs) don't need to write it all down this time (laughs) yeah exactly it it is really fascinating because i've done you know again i I had the make the switch to do you know radio and tv commercials and then Mm. i'm i'm again working on like pilot scripts and stuff for some other projects and it is, uh, you know, I was talking with uh, Daniel Abraham, who's one half of James S.A. Corey from The Expanse. And he's just like, yeah, it's just, it's a totally different thing. Like oh, something that you would take a page to explain that you don't have to because it's all, it's all there. You don't have to say goodbye on the phone because people just hang up. You know, yeah. like, there's all these little things <laughs> that you don't, you don't consider until you actually see how it's been interpreted. And in fact, you know, I, I read, a, again, the showrunner for Witcher shared on Reddit her final page of the final episode, and he has a ton more dialogue. And she's like, mm. all of that stuff, he had way more dialogue, and we cut it. We didn't need it because of, again, the performance. <laughs> no, <laughs> so it's, we it's true. It's like, um, it's true. It's like, yeah. it's true. Yeah, and it's like, yeah. when you understand, there's enough, right? Visually, mm-hmm. you know, I'm getting enough. Let's not let's not hit people over the head with it. It is a, a totally different um, medium. And, and yeah, retraining, again, talk about retraining your brain, right? Mm-hmm. That we talk about mm-hmm. retraining your brain to do those things is just, yeah, it's really fascinating. I think it's interesting as well, because The Witcher also has um, not only, obviously, the, the textual material to work with, there's also the interpretation of the games. Yeah. So you're entering into something which has been translated into kind of essentially multiple different sort of forms of interaction. So you're going to end up with a watcher, you know, who might be coming from the games or mm-hmm. might be coming from the books or might be coming from it cold. And there's so kind of much lore and the way that the character has been interpreted across from the games as well as from the page that all starts to tie in. When you pull it together into an adaptation. You can see kind of the seams. You can see sort of like where some of the visual effects from the game sort of get Mm -hmm, mapped in mm -hmm. and stuff. But one of the things that I truly, truly, truly appreciate about The Witcher, there's a lot to really like in there. But the the one thing that I love almost more, almost more than I love the timeline stuff, almost more than I love like the performances, is the fact that they use magic and magical items without ever explaining them. 
There's yeah. no exposition yeah. about yep. those things. There's exposition about what's going on in the kingdoms, like what, you know, sort of the world building aspects of those things. But like, he will just down a potion and it's a potion. You know why? Because <laughs> in a video game, it's just a potion. That's what you do. It's yeah. just a potion, mate. Like, you don't really have to explain, like, I brewed this under the full moon using mandrake root and vervain and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no one cares. No, no one cares. cares. No, I can, exactly. like, no one cares. It's a monster of the like, week show. Slay some monsters like, and take your potion. Yeah, yeah. It goes back to the point of, like, is the character okay or not? Mm-hmm. It's It's sort of like, I don't need to know the technical wizardry behind... Uh, behind how he did this. And this is a thing that you run into with science fiction as well, where it's like, you know, I I think a lot of earlier science fiction was about like, let me take an entire page to explain to you what a Lagrange point is. And, and now there's this, you know, I think people are finally coming around to the idea that like, no, people just care about like the character who's, who's inhabiting that space. Mm-hmm. And, and I also really love doing. the people who are like, but you know, this isn't how science works. And you're like, <laughs> guys, that's I not how I your mom how works. Like you, this, you know? this is fiction that you're reading. No, it's. I mean, there's. If if there's something like flagrantly wrong, that's one thing. But but on but there's but often in a in a text where there is something flagrantly scientifically wrong, there will also mm-hmm. be things that are flagrant flagrantly wrong in other ways. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's the the stupidity just sort of goes across all the way i find most of the time people like to just do their homework and then find a way to do what is it john scalzi calls it like the two questions down the two questions dig where it's like can it survive a couple of rounds of questioning great fine it's great. an alibi yeah, exactly we don't need you're, anymore you're building yeah. an alibi right yeah. like that's <laughs> when i think about the science in my books it's like well you know i i did some research i read i read some abstracts on nature or discover or 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 what have you i know what research is going on i understand like what technological trends are are at play and and so on yeah mm-hmm. I, I get it and and i'm building an alibi for the story scientifically like it has to survive a couple of rounds of questioning it has to be believable there has to be motive and opportunity and there we're done you don't need to write a physics textbook no, for this imagined no, world. No, to yeah, talk about. and and, and, I yeah. Think, and there's still some there's still some writers who appreciate doing that. Um, but it's just yeah, it's not it's not my thing. I, I want to know as little as possible because to me that's the place where the audience gets to or the reader gets to insert themselves and be mm-hmm. part of making up this great world. Yeah, right? and again, whether that's The Witcher or again, I, I'm the same mm-hmm. way with like okay, there's magic. <laughs> I, I, was, I was working with um, the artist uh, who was who was doing the map for the whole World Breaker saga. Mm. And uh, she was like, okay, so what are these objects in the sky that the magic comes from? I'm like, oh, they're just objects in the sky. And she's like, well, but what are they? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> no one in the story the knows. From which they draw magic. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. No, it like- looks sort of like this. And she's like, is this all right? I'm like, that's it's fine. Ship and you, it. and you um, find, like very few people ask that about the monolith in 2001. It's uh, like, yeah, you know, yeah. it's like, here's well, this MacGuffin that yeah. dropped out of the sky. Mm-hmm. Here's a MacGuffin that showed up and it gave people enhanced cognition. The end. Like <laughs> you wouldn't, you wouldn't really know, at least in the novel, you do kind of know a little bit more, but, but in, in the film, it's just like, yeah, that's the power of it is that you don't know. Yeah. Yeah part of where the magic comes from yeah exactly. well in the, in the scariness like it's 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 horrifying when you consider it but it's mm-hmm. because that MacGuffin is doing so much work for you it's do, like in the story the fact that you don't know is as powerful right as as knowing exactly how it works there's I always find that like it, if you're having to describe exactly how it works you shouldn't be writing fiction you should be writing a powerpoint mm-hmm. yeah yep yeah um so to kind of close us off, what I wanted to ask you, and you don't have to have an answer for it, just make something up for me. If you're going to do a fan cast, you get to cast oh, for an adaptation for these trilogies. Mm. Who are you going to cast and which parts? I know it's such oh, a good question. That's, I've have gone never, through that. Have you visualized them? <laughs> I had different actors cast in the moment that I, that mm-hmm. I did it. Um, now they've sort of all, They're all kind aged of out. aged out of the parts. Yeah, <laughs> um, they've aged out of the parts. I used to think that Elle Fanning would be really good. 
uh, as Amy and Portia and Charlotte, because the the VNs sort of all look like each other. They they mm -hmm. they iterate themselves, right? So you would need an actress who can carry uh, sort of in the same way that Tatiana Maslany did on on Orphan Black. You would need somebody who can be many many different people mm -hmm. and 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 distinctively different people while still looking the same. And someone who can project age or vulnerability or, or youth. And I thought that, um, I think that Elle Fanning is pretty good at that. Uh, for Javier, it's actually like a really, really tough call. Um, I've gone through multiple different visions of, of who should play him. Uh, and, and actually, I remember someone else asked me this in a blog post, and it really highlighted to me the, the dearth, like the lack of of opportunities for latino and latin exact uh mm -hmm. actors out there because suddenly i was searching for like the same five names and it was really disappointing yeah. um who has it been then in the past have you uh for a while he was in my head for a while he was uh he was diego luna mm -hmm. um and still i would probably actually like go with that but there was um an actor on there was an actor on breaking bad that he was for a while uh there was a few different I could probably fire up Scrivener and find his dossier actually, and, <laughs> and find it because, like, I will do that. Like, I'll drop in, like, um, I'll drop in photos of like a photo reference of like what people are supposed to look like, because mm -hmm. that'll shift over time. But uh, it's also a great procrastination method is to is to <laughs> mood board. Like it feels like work. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like I'm gonna yeah. do an entire mood board of this character. That's definitely working, right? <laughs> Yeah. It's a fantastic procrastination. <laughs> I love it. Uh, whilst you find Scrivener, Cameron, do you want to do you want to fan cast? You know, uh, again, one of the reasons I was was gobsmacked at The Witcher is because um, you know when Yennefer walks in when she still mm -hmm. is uh, disabled was like, holy shit, that's my character. That was Lilia yeah. who mm -hmm. who runs the whole uh, the whole show across the trilogy and. I was sad, of course, in The Witcher, you know, trying not to mm -hmm. spoil, but they don't keep her that way. And in mine, I, I, it was important to me to actually have a disabled heroine. I have a chronic illness yeah. myself. My niece has chronic asthma, which uh, also this character does. And it absolutely was. I was like, holy crap, that is that is totally the character. And that would totally work, again, keeping her different. Uh, that said, you know, I, and here's the problem too with, with being older is finding younger actors and knowing you're like, oh, who works for this and that and the other thing. Older actors, no problem, but younger ones are hard and mine start out fairly young. Um, I remember I was on a production call for another um, show based on geek feminists that we're working on. Um, and uh, the producer's like, okay, you know, what do we think? Do we want to attach a younger actress to this? And, and the screenwriter was like, yeah, I put... I put some ideas in the back and so the treatment. So he's going back and he goes, Oh yeah, this girl from Game of Thrones, put her into the IMDb and he said, uh, and the character is supposed to be 22, 24. Mm -hmm. And he looks him up and goes, would you, would you ever guess that this young lady is 38 years old? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I have no idea. I have no idea. Um, you know, <laughs> who is going to be the, the right sort of person. I think for some of these roles, I would love to see, honestly people that have not been cast in a lot of stuff mm -hmm. before, yeah yeah um which i think would be uh much more fun and sort of help with not kind of bumping you out of the story for that particular reason i know again the showrunner on witcher she saw 207 other people after henry cavill actually came to her uh, and he like called right away she said he was he was on the phone the minute that they announced the thing it was like we got to talk i want this this thing and she's like i just don't see it seven people and she finally was like you know what i'm hearing his voice now yeah i'm starting to hear his voice while i'm writing like she was like we didn't have scarcity i mean so sometimes it's like it it you what you think isn't gonna work actually works mm -hmm. but yeah for sure man that actress who plays yennefer i was like holy crap that's that's yeah really so and the actress who plays siri speaking of age oh, thing yeah. Because she, to me, just like is exactly that total, like innocent early teenager face. Mm -hmm. And then I googled her, and she's eighteen. She's eighteen. So yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. I know. Right? I lost it. It's, I was so she's to be twelve. Yeah. It's, a, it's amazing the, what thing. not wearing makeup can do. Yes, <laughs> miracle, isn't it? Not can do for your. It's family. true. I got ID uh, to try and buy aspirin here uh, <laughs> last year. Yep. Uh, which means that they thought that I was under fourteen. Oh yeah, my god. I've had, wow. Which was it's, interesting interesting for me. It's when I'm not wearing makeup that I've been carded Funny. the most. It's it's weird. It's very strange. Which is why I now wear makeup. <laughs> 
I, sometimes it just makes it easier. People start to talk to you in a different way. I, mm-hmm. I, I, there's mm-hmm. a noticeable difference, yep. which, you know, there's a lot of problems with that, which we're going to just gloss over because we don't Quite have the time to get into it. But, <laughs> um, but do you have the Scrivener open? Can you tell yeah, us? Yeah, no, it was actually, it was Nicholas Gonzalez who was uh, okay. on Sleepy, Sleepy Hollow for a while and he'd done, he'd done other things. He'd done a guest spot on the OC for a while, I think. And like, I think he'd also possibly had a, a bit on Breaking Bad. But but yeah, it was sort of like this, you had to find somebody who would really look, who would have the, the right smile, like the right sort of like very mischievous very like mm-hmm. willing to take the piss out of out of Amy, but also have a sort of uh, vulnerability, and also this guy that you would want to see like multiple different iterations of, because within VN and ID, and actually also in Rev, you you meet Javier and all of his juniors, all of the all of the different versions of himself that he's since iterated and they sort of band together and join on the hunt to find their dad and give him a piece of their mind so you want to you know like you're a terrible father and we're going to explain to you why uh it's like all of his robot children who look exactly like him like in sort of russian nesting doll kind of way like come back and find him and they're like yeah by the way you were crap and and so you would kind of also a person that you think could kind of carry that off is is important Mm -hmm. Well, thank you both so much for joining me. It was really, really lovely to have you. And for everyone listening, I will make sure that the books are linked underneath so that you can pre-order them. Well, actually, by the time this comes out, it won't be a pre-order count. Yeah, yeah. It's right. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you can order them slash pre-order them. But thank you so much. It was a pleasure to have you both. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.